from Rixie. This is Frameform. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Frameform. In fact, it's actually our last episode of the season. But, you know, we're moving forward and that's what we do because we have to take a break sometimes. But we want to end this season with a bang. And what better way to end it with a returning guest? Uh, Nathan Skoll from our Beyond Spectacle episode last year is back again with us with another Beyond Spectacle episode. So Nathan, welcome back. We're so happy to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, we just had such a blast last year talking about our three films. What were they again? Big Lebowski, Romeo and Michelle's, and Burning. So we had such an incredible range of films, and we really did our best to deep dive into all of them. But we decided this year we would focus on one singular film and we let Nathan pick that film. But before we get into that specific film and why we want to talk about that specific one today, let's meet or, you know, whether it's for the first time or a refresher from last year, let's meet our guest, Nathan. Uh, Hello again. Uh, I'm Nathan Skoll. Edit it out if it's an issue. I know Hannah from when we did our MFAs together. We were in the same cohort. And my area of research, I was concurrently working on a PhD. And my area of research is dance movies, popularly speaking. So I deal mostly with the U.S. industry and affiliated, meaning, you know, international movies that are trying to break into the U.S. market. Dance movies, mostly from Saturday Night Fever to the present. But of course, to contextualize that means going back to the Red Shoes and really going back to the advent of cinema because a lot of the early silent actualities were showcasing dancers. So dance movies, well, perceived to the extent they're perceived at all, they're seen as something of a novelty or a subgenre. They actually predate musicals and have been there since the inception of cinema. So I'm mostly going on the past, you know, 40 plus years since Saturday Night Fever, but really it's the past, you know, since 1895. So, Nathan, you gave us three options, and I'm not going to list the other two because we decided to go with Ichabod Crane, which is the legend of Sleepy Hollow, basically. And specifically saying, looking at the Disney 1949 version of Legend of Sleepy Hollow, so... Why did you bring this to the table for us? Well, first and foremost, I've loved this since I was a kid. So I guess personal bias is part of it, personal preference. But I think it's such a rich little text because it's part of a package film. And, you know, what Disney was doing back when and... This has kind of ebbed and flowed a little bit since, but especially in the 40s, they were doing kind of compilation films. And they were not conceived initially as compilations, but sometimes assembled after the fact. We were talking a little before the show, but some of that was part of the war effort 
a variety of studios were involved in, in different capacities. But Disney especially was involved in the Latin American uh, good neighbor policy and was doing some of these films. For, so Saludos Amigos and The Three Caballeros were done as part of the Latin American kind of goodwill policy. Disney was partnered up with RKO at the time. So Orson Welles was down in Latin America, you know, trying to broader things in film history. He was filming a lot of Carnival and Samba. And this ties very much into Magnificent Ambersons because he had kind of washed his hands of it by that point. But the Disney RKO, Latin American thing ties in. But as, as you had mentioned, this was actually interesting too as kind of a goodwill and allyship gesture towards the UK and England by taking Kenneth Graham's Wind in the Willows and then Washington Irving's Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And then the dance scene specifically does not factor as much into the short story, but the short story is very much about the concept of Americanness and how this was developing, you know, after the independence and the breakaway from it. So it's interesting that it would be partnered with the specifically English thing because Ichabod Crane is kind of epitomizing what we were trying to get away from, but also trying to formulate for ourselves as a national literary and cultural identity. That's what a lot of Irving's literature was about. So to take that and what is only implied really or a throwaway line about dancing at the party and make it kind of a set piece of this short movie, which is about 22 minutes, I think, but it closes out the second act and you have these two kind of opposites of, you know, Ichabod and the locals because Ichabod's an outsider. And then you have the upstart colonies looking back at the older world and it's partnered with this kind of old world English thing or semi-old world. I mean, Mr. Toad is learning to drive, <laughs> but the modern world, uh, you know, there are these concepts of modernity in the face of tradition and dancing, of course, like pretty much any other artistic form is going to epitomize and hopefully gracefully reconcile at times these tensions. So you have kind of the tensions between the old and the new and the form of the dance is an extension of that in the narrative of Sleepy Hollow itself, but also between the two stories. But I'm going to focus mostly on Sleepy Hollow itself and how it functions in the story. What you have with Sleepy Hollow is a dance macabre. So this is the last pure levity before things start to get scary. And you have within Sleepy Hollow the balancing act that is hard to pull off, but I've noticed a lot of my favorite horror movies pull off funny and scary in equal measure. Uh, I think Sleepy Hollow, just watching it so many times as a kid, kind of set that tone for me. But again, you have these mergers of kind of ostensible opposites, but they gracefully come together. So you have another kind of interplay in the tensions between that and the, the way they harmoniously gel. And of course, you have the action choreography and the dance choreography playing off each other, both of which are animated. That's what's another tension and interesting is that this has to be generated by the animators. And I, I got to talk a little more about Dance Macabre before I talk about some of these other tensions and, you know, reconciliations. But with a dance macabre, you know, dance macabres are funny and scary simultaneously, depending on the dance macabre. They're kind of on a spectrum because a dance macabre is either going to be, you know, my go to is the Pied Piper. OK, so in a lot of iterations, the Pied Piper, he gets, you know, shafted by the town elders, steals their children, leads them away and they're never heard from again. 
okay? So he basically kills all, all their children in some iterations. In the Disney iteration, which is from the 30s, it's animated, obviously, but he leads them into kind of a halcyon, never-never-land, eternal, happily ever after, okay? So Dance Macabre usually functions either as the inevitable dance of life to the grave where it's terminal, or it is, in a more optimistic sense, dancing past the grave. With Sleepy Hollow in particular, you have the dancing leading to all the scary stuff that follows in the third act. And you have also the ambiguity of the ending, where it's unclear if Ichabod's killed or if he's just chased out of town by Brom. It's unclear if Brom was posing as the Headless Horseman or if there's actually a Headless Horseman. And if you read the short story, it really embraces this ambiguity because American identity was itself ambiguous. And this is kind of a lighthearted approach to these tensions that were going on in America at the time. So there's the dance macabre element, but then dance generally, and you are all far more qualified than I to speak to this, and you're all better dancers than I am, certainly. But there's a tension within dance and cinematic expressions of dance of individual freestyle versus the tensions of partner dancing, and the, the orthodoxy that determines dance performance, okay? No, there's not a lot of room for freestyling in ballet. Even if there is form for personal expression, it's very rigid. Ballroom dancing, all these things, okay? But the tension between the personal expression of the orthodox move and then transcending or breaking past that, this can tie back to dance macabre because with dance macabre, again, you can transcend those mortal limitations and dance eternally, or you can be kind of killed by it. And, you know, it cuts both ways. But the tension oftentimes depending on what you want to bring to it and how you want to examine it, and depending on the context of the broader tapestry of what's going on in the story, is the interplay of the personal expression versus the orthodoxy and the personal expression versus the partner dance. And you see that very much going on in the Dancing in Sleepy Hollow, which Ichabod ends as a solo because he's such a peacock and he just breaks free at the end and he's totally free of any of the things and everybody is kind of bowing down to him. But as functions in dance movies and dance macabre, you know, kind of gives it this charge is you have this kind of pride goeth before a fall or they, you know, are raised at this pinnacle only to have to be punished for it, you know? So in something like Black Swan, that's what it's leading up to, the red shoes. You know, it gets you to this point of excellence and you obtain a kind of immortality as a dancer, okay? The idea is that you become the performance. It is legendary and cemented, but that's also kind of treading on the forum of the gods or the territory of the gods, which ties back to the dance macabre thing. And it's that, will you be killed for it even if you're a legend? And what is it? It is a legend of sleepy hollow <laughs> so you have all these different things that somebody like me who's thought way too much about this stuff there's a lot about gender roles and heteronormativity that is playing out in the legend of sleepy hollow dance scene that's also interesting to just if you want to approach it that way it's far more than just its narrative or spectacular function absolutely and it's definitely part of a character exposition function. And this is something that really irked me in film school 
and actually inspired the name for the these episode topics beyond spectacle because I would argue that you know as a dancer you look at the dance numbers and you can still extract narrative from the way the dancers expressing themselves or the lyrics in the song the environment the context of that number sometimes it's happening during like a transformative moment in this case in sleepy hollow it is you know, and I love that you pointed out the RKO collaboration as well, because that definitely is at play here, because it does really follow somewhat the structure of a classical musical, where you have literally the lyrics to the song are describing, like, who the character is, what they're doing, what they want, what's happening next. And it makes it very easy and digestible for audiences, but it also has this, you know, spectacular element. And I love how you had your the lens of looking at it as a dance macabre and linking it to the legend. I think that's exactly the kind of thing we want to talk about here. And there's so many different threads we can pull, but I'm going to let Claire choose which way we're going to go next. Yeah. I mean, I also love the dance macabre uh, description as well. And that's actually been topic in screen dance, especially lately in response to COVID that many, maybe you could potentially make an argument that, you know, all these COVID videos are, in a sense, dance macabre because they are responding to this time. But yeah, I think that the film uh, or this scene really runs the gamut of what the social construction of respectability is, what the social construction of desire is. And we really see that in not only, you know, Brahm versus Ichabod, but we also see that in the difference between the two women as well and the portrayal between the quote-unquote desired woman who almost seems like a proxy for – I mean, I mean that woman reminded me like of Aurora like from the Disney Sleeping Beauty, like that just like the colors versus the quote-unquote undesired. So the one who is not abiding by, you know, the, the rules of respectability or whether that's in, in dance or that's in – presentation. And there's an interesting push and pull in that regard. And it's one that irked me in a, in a strange way because it does suggest that, you know, you know, natural impulse, you know, one one's impulse to go beyond the rules of the game is considered quote unquote bad in this context. Well, both of you, as far as the uh, spectacle versus narrative, again, that's kind of a false binary because spectacle and narrative ideally are unified. And I think one advantage of Legend of Sleepy Hall, and one thing I have I loved about it that I didn't notice till film school and stuff, I'm like, this is pure cinema. None of the characters speak. The characters lip sync on occasion, but there's no real dialogue to anything. It's all Bing Crosby's narration. And there's no narration practically at all for the whole second half of the dance sequence. So it is pure spectacle, and the narrative is derived from the spectacle. And there are character beats, and there are dramatic reversals that take it beyond just, oh, we're just having fun. It kind of goes back to those silent roots and those more pure cinema I'm doing in air quotes, because that's kind of a silly concept in some ways if taken to extremes. But about the different kind of female archetypes, a couple of things I wanted to point out based on what Claire was saying. Ichabod, there are different male archetypes too. And it is not nearly as cruel to Ichabod as it is to that woman. However, 
it's very interesting in the little coda moment of the Ichabod, you know, vignette. After the Smash Pumpkin and the story is wrapping up, it's, you know, saying Brahm married Katrina. And it shows a woman who Brahm is marrying at the altar doesn't look like Katrina. And she's much larger. And the implication is like, did he get her pregnant before the thing? Because Katrina is really just playing Brahm against Ichabod to win Brahm. She's using Ichabod as a pawn and Ichabod doesn't realize it. And that's kind of in the short story, too. And, you know, the, sh- the short story is kind of a cautionary tale, something I also didn't realize till later in life. I'm like, Ichabod's a, a heel. He's not a good person. He's a glutton. He's a lech. <laughs> yeah. He is totally after. He's using Cretina. He thinks he's, she's hot. But he's after her father's fortune. I was going to say, he's probably the f- he's probably one of the first male gold digger characters I've seen. And that's definitely not a common stereotype. But and Ichabod can't compete with Brahms, like alpha male, big butch thing. But he has these more feminine attributes. Okay, he leads the town choral. He's got the cerebral over the physical, and he's you know built like a scarecrow. It says, but you know even Brahm has to admit the narration tells us in the dance scene he's like Ichabod is a picture of grace in movement. So Ichabod, you know, dance. And one of the scenes I pitched for this was In and Out because of the way In and Out deals with dance's relation to gender norms. But it's very interesting because Ichabod is our hero in part because he has these more rarefied, you know, skill sets. He's cerebral and physical in a much more graceful way than he is a brawny way. And that kind of leads to his downfall. So what's interesting is the way that he's our hero, but he's also arguably punished by the narrative, but the narrative has its cake and eats it because we're not sure if Ichabod leaves or just does. And we see that Ichabod does not marry somebody hot like Katrina or rich. He marries somebody who looks just like his and all his little kids around the table at the end look just like him. So it's kind of one read on the movie is it's keeping everybody in their lane, arguably. But Ichabod transcends that lane for a while. And he does it through dance because he is the bell of the ball more than Katrina, more than any of the people, that he is the bell of the ball through his dance ability. And that's kind of an interesting concept, especially for the time for a male protagonist. That was the one thing I noticed, like, straight ahead. I mean, just even from the beginning when we first are introduced to Ichabod, like, through his shadow, like, obviously, we're going to be following someone that is definitely different from the most of the bunch in the village. But... Even throughout that second part of the dance scene where we're going to that more, I would say, contemporary song that Brahms sings, everything is very jazzy and low, which definitely puts Ichabod out of his place. Again, it's like the strength and uh, masculinity that Brahm showcases throughout his everything in that, in this story, but it definitely makes Ichabod just like it's just humiliating almost, you know? I mean, it's definitely like the bully that is in high school that's picking on the main character in this sense. But yeah, it's very strange how Ichabod in a way is also like an antagonist that's just trying to like, even though he is viewed in such a positive light, I mean, everyone has their kind of like negative attributes. <laughs> that gets overlooked upon. 
And I think that speaks to sort of those motivations behind his actions. And I'm, I just remember that one scene at the beginning where he has the impulse to tell off two schoolboys, but then decides to be nice to them, I guess, seemingly under the veneer of, okay, you know, we'll, we're building a good rapport, but their mothers are also giving him food. It's exclusively because he notices all the food overflowing from the one kid's thing, and then it, you know, segues to him at their dinner table. He's, like, not a likable character, in my opinion. Like, I was watching the whole time, and I was just kind of like, it's proof that, you know, and especially now Disney's remaking a lot of their films, like Cruella just came out. They're revisiting these anti-heroes, Maleficent, giving them backstories, and, you know, Face it, like, we've always loved the villains. They've always been really entertaining and some of the best characters. But in this case, it's almost like not identifying with this main character that's still presented in this very positive way just kind of left me with a, a, a wee bit amount of frustration. And I was really relieved to see <laughs> how things ended. He gets his comeuppance. Whether or not he's killed, yeah. Yeah, and like the narrator is saying at the end, like, I'm getting out of here. And I literally wrote in my notes, by the end, I'm ready too. Like, it's a really good example of screen dance, but I can see why Disney maybe didn't do more stories like this. I think there's more carbon copies from a literal animation standpoint. Like, I would not be surprised if that is literally Aurora. And I think the character with the green dress, I've seen her somewhere before. Is she, like, the um, sword in the stone? Yeah, she kind of reminds me of, like, one of the, like, the fairies in Sleepy Beauty as well. Or... Yes. Just, or, like, possibly, like, a stepsister as well. Because Cinderella actually came out three months after this film was released. She looks like Drizella. Yeah, Totally. Right? So it's interesting. Like, I think my favorite thing about Disney films from this era is looking at kind of like the circumstances of making it and the sort of agenda behind it. Because Disney to this day is still making propaganda, quite frankly, and, you know, very much a big player in culture. So it is important to look at these sorts of films and peel back the layers and say, like, okay, what is this film really trying to say? And how is it uniquely saying it with animation? One thing I really loved and that animation allows us to do, and we talked more about this a couple episodes ago, is just, like, site-specific choreography and going beyond what you can actually do in reality. So, like, I think my two favorite parts of Sleepy Hollow were the whole, and I don't like slapstick comedy, but just the door fight scene Oh yeah, was great. And and the time where the one character, like his ghost kind of separates from his body. Yeah, I And then that. Ichabod dances with him. That part, I actually laughed out loud. So it's really those sorts of moments that I revel in with these sorts of films because you could not do that with a live action performance or film or it wouldn't even look the same with CGI. It's just nice to see it in old 2D animation. I think just how Ichabod is presented with his stature, again, bringing back to the very beginning with his shadow, like I like how this film really plays into the body as a whole and even down to his ponytail when it's twirling out of control. I mean, I think... That works really well in just how to be creative outside of what you can actually do with your body. Absolutely. Like there's this sense of, I mean, not only in um, Ichabod, but also in the Wind and the Willows film, just sort of like the longest possible route to perform an action. 
that everything has like, you know, it's every, you know, detail of getting to that object or getting to that action is really thought through. Like, I'm just thinking like, even when Ichabod's walking, like you kind of see these little Ronda Joms going around, like picking up the leg down, picking up the leg down. And that's something that almost emphasizes sort of the, I don't want to say stuffiness of his character, but sort of like the veneer, like the presentable veneer that he's trying to put on. A couple of things on character design. First on Ichabod, and kind of just generally with animation, being able to do things with dance that you obviously can't based on physical limitations and, you know, gravity. Ichabod, they say his feet are like shovels. And yes, he has this loping, weird walk Okay, and that's how we're introduced to him is he's not very graceful. He's got these very odd features. He should not be able to gracefully dance with feet like that and with a gait like that, number one. In the short story, you know, they compare Ichabod to a bird a lot. And all throughout the stories, it's talking about people eating birds. So it's kind of fun foreshadowing because like there's a lot of subtle foreshadowing that if you uh, know it and you read the short story, you're like, oh, He's he doesn't even realize it, but he's dead and you get it differently in the movie. But I wanted to say also with character designs, I think the girl in the teal dress who is the butt of several jokes, even though she's on a date with Ichabod a little earlier, she's feeding him a picnic lunch when he first like spies Katrina. She her character design and some of her resemblance is very much like I forget her name, but it's the blue dressed fairy in uh, Sleeping Beauty. So the whole make it blue, make it pink thing. Yeah, you have some of the similar character elements kind of going to that. But uh, to kind of point out the elephant in the room, it's almost impossible for me to think that Gaston is not a reworking of Brom, especially the color scheme that you have in the dance scene because, you know, kind of the burgundy coat and the breeches and just the ultra masculine, you know, buck character. And that, you know make this a bonus feature, cut it out. But just thinking of Beauty and the Beast, you have Braun versus Braun, not Braun, but Braun, because you have the standoff between the Beast and Gaston at the end, okay? Yet what's the signature kind of second act scene before it all gets complicated at the end of the second act in Beauty and the Beast? The ballroom scene. Okay, and the beast should not be able to move that gracefully. And then going back to my thoughts on gender, as as informed as they are, I'm more off the cuff. But still, it's very interesting with the gender roles and the representation that it's still kind of a punchline, it seems, for people to kind of snicker at the way the beast is when he turns back into his human form and how feminine he is versus Brahm and just in general. So it's interesting if we're comparing this to other Disney films that came after, both aesthetically and in terms of narrative incident, that might be food for thought if anybody wants to nibble on that. But Brom was definitely, like, not a good dancer in this. I mean, even though he was, like, roped into the chaos of what we're going to just keep calling the Blue Fairy, every time he tried to have a moment with Katrina, it just never worked. I mean, as I've said with like the contemporary music in the second scene, which is more of his style, which causes Ichabod to like not be in his place. It's like the, that way around where it's like, he can't handle, you know, the, these 
classical styles of partner dancing and being eloquent where it's like, no, that we're in this new jazzy kind of time and we got to move forward. And it's all about, you know, being the man and not being like the gentleman. Well, and he, you know, it cuts to him very decisively on the sidelines, jealous of Ichabod because Brom doesn't know how to dance and he's out of place on the dance floor and he's envying Ichabod's performance. So two things about that. Brom is danced throughout the second half when the tempo picks up. He has next to no control. For only one or two bars is he actually dancing with Katrina, and it's very standard, like you'd see at a high school dance, practically, of people just rocking back and forth. He is very just rudimentary in his movements, but he is otherwise, he is danced. He is not an active agent. He is overtaken by the shorter woman. And that's kind of interesting because this inverts, you know, typically in typical athletic endeavors, you have the skinny, geeky guy on the bench, jealous of the jocks. And dance flips that on its thing. This reminds me of one other thing I wanted to mention. As far as how dance movies, but also, you know, musicals to a large extent, navigate traditional gender roles, they tend to have to, dance movies specifically, but again, some of the other ones do this. They will give the male a scene of violence to demonstrate their kind of conventional masculinity to offset any readings or suspicions certain audience members might have of, hey, this guy's really good at dancing and that's not like a, a masculine thing. So every dance movie, there will be a fist fight that the male lead has. And that's kind of reasserting his masculinity. But you see it also in a lot of the different, you know, standard musicals like West Side Story, Tony's got to be part of the rumble, you know? So it, it, you have to kind of throw that stuff in. I don't think you have to throw it in, but it's interesting that just the gender expectations are undercut and the threat that that may have to conventional ideas of gender, which are very narrow, they have to do something to contain that potential subversion. So you'll have dance battles, but they're usually offset. So you'll substitute dance for the physical violence by having a dance off of some sort, but you will have to offset that or have to as air quotes. They will offset it. The makers will offset it by some element of physical violence to kind of reassert the standard order and status quo of gender roles. I will say, though, an interesting thing is that these characters don't seem to have a consistent physicality. Like you said, Ichabod doesn't seem like he should be good at dancing. But at the end of the day, Brahm actually has the last laugh. And he has really great physicality when it comes to his storytelling. And he's expressive. It's not like he's this awkward guy. So by the end of it, he uses the power of his mind. And thankfully, he's able to you know, unsike himself after being intimidated on the dance floor, but he's able to prevail and use the power of his mind to actually overcome Ichabod, who then, you know, falls prey. And again, we don't know if there is a headless horseman, what exactly happened, but I do love how they sort of one up each other and almost have to go into a different arsenal. There's a lot of the traditional physical courtship. And then at the end of it, it really is kind of reflective of life where, other tools come into play, including the mind. Well, I got to say, Brahm does a bit of a dance. It's not a proper dance, but where you're introduced to Brahm and he leaps from his horse onto a rolling barrel, (laughs) runs with it, jumps off, and then pivots into this thing. So the barrel rolls up his body onto his shoulder. He's pretty graceful, you know? So 
just watching this film as a whole, it just gave me the sense that Ichabod was preparing for the wrong thing in a way. Because there's so much buildup to that dance and there's so much buildup to that potential, you know, encounter with Katrina that you know, when we get to that third act, it's it seems like he's generally caught off guard. Like there's just so much buildup like with, the, you know, the powdering of the face and sort of this hyper, I mean, almost like a hyper control of the you know, the dance scene itself. Like almost like all cylinders are firing there and then they were turned off at the worst possible time. I mean, I could say in a way that this like, chase off is in a dance moment too as they are like one thing that always that stuck out to me watching this was them going around the tree as many times as possible and then his neck getting caught on the tree and then it's going backwards and he's going the wrong way I mean I think that's like a dance within itself where it's just kind of like here he is trying to choreograph a horse you know trying to direct it in the way that he wants it to go. But I mean, even that is so out of control because he was spooked and he did go crazy to the point that we don't know what happens. Well, and Ichabod is basically, just as Brahm is being danced rather than dancing, throughout the chase, Ichabod is being danced in that tree scene. And then as he's about to approach the bridge, they spin around so many times, he's basically being pirouetted, you know, against his will. And it, it kind of ruins the whole calculus. And just, you know, random observation, going around the scene, I hadn't thought about it. It's kind of like a maypole, and a maypole is very yes. much dance macabre. So I'm now thinking of like the 32 Fuetes and (laughs) leads her to her final goodbyes to just dancing till your death. Well, I mean, I think this, this discussion amongst just animation and Disney characteristics and type uh, archetypes that we usually see the dance macabre. I mean, I, I'm curious to now watch other D- Disney movies that exhibit similar tropes that in a very early Disney film has embodied here. One of the first breakthrough Disney cartoons was the skeleton dance. Yes. Which is very charming. Obviously, it's dance macabre. But one of the charming things about skeleton dance is the way that they are doing things that you can't in real life because the skeletons are swapping bones with each other and dancing through things. Um, But there's this kind of legacy of Disney dance macabre. I already mentioned the Pied Piper short they did that was either in 33, 35, or 37. It's one of the odd 30 numbers. I can't remember exactly which, but that was a pretty popular short. And then, of course, Fantasia in the Night in Bald Mountain sequence, you have the dancing flames who are you know turning it's the flames dancing and then they turn into demons dancing and then back into flames but that has kind of this spooky dance macabre thing so there's a lot of dance macabre stuff through early disney and you know disney especially in the earlier times the beauty of it they weren't afraid to be creepy and dark and it kind of adds a charge and i i should say too I don't want to see Disney reboot this in any way because I think it's pretty much perfection as it is. And if it were any longer, it would suffer for it. So it doesn't need a reboot. That said, I wish they would do a ride at the theme parks. I would much, 
I like Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. I think you could do such a cool ride, at least based on the chase, but you could have kind of the fun and games because with a lot of Disney rides, you have the fun and games and then it gets really spooky at the end and then you're safe and free again. And I was like, oh man, I would love there to be uh, a Sleepy Hollow ride. So maybe someday. Guys, uh, I, I almost feel like I've been unknowingly preparing for this part of our conversation. I have watched the entire first season of Behind the Attraction on Disney+. Plus. So they look at all sorts of different attractions, but also things, features of the parks, like the hotels, the monorails, yada, yada. And a couple themes with what you said there. Number one, Disney combining funny and scary is in their DNA. Anytime they do scary, they also make it funny and it kind of makes the scary stuff better and the funny stuff cooler. And as far as redoing Splash Mountain, they are redoing Splash Mountain. They are making it uh, Princess and the Frog. Ah, yep. okay. So Shadow Man's going to have the thing and that'll be cool. Yeah. He will, for sure. I think that'll be awesome. But this would be a great Disney ride. And I remember being so confused because, like, my dad's side of the family is British, so we always went on Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. But I was always confused, like, there's no Disney movie for this. But I guess it's because it was shared with Sleepy Hollow. I, like, never saw it. Either or both. Ideally both. But this is perfect Halloween season viewing. Perfect autumnal viewing because of the colors and the setting. So... There's that. Oh, and then the, the other animation thing with Dance Macabre I wanted to mention, it is not Disney, but the it's Fleischer Brothers, which was the big game in town before Disney uh, arrived. But the Coco the Clown, St. James Infirmary, you can watch it on YouTube. Great Dance Macabre. And one of the things that's so cool is it's rotoscoped, mm. but basically only the heads hands and feet are rotoscope. So you have this really weird split difference between realism and formalism. And they take, it's rooted in realistic movement because it's rotoscoped. But within that, you just have these cool stretching limbs and all sorts of really cool stuff. So I don't know if that's relevant to your animation episode, but it's, I wanted to mention it based on what you were saying about some of your interests at, at how animation can take screen dance in really interesting directions. So we'll definitely link that in the show notes. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for coming on the show and especially picking this film for us to really like dissect for um, ourselves and the viewers. And um, I hope people go out and well turn on the television and get, I don't know, log into their Disney plus and <laughs> watch it. Well, in this behind the attractions, I'm a huge Simpsons fan. So for me, I mean, I own most of the Disney stuff. I'm good on that. But I was like, maybe I should get Disney Plus just for all the seasons of The Simpsons that aren't on DVD. This is the first thing where you mentioned behind the attractions. I'm like, oh, I got to get Disney Plus now <laughs> because I am such a nerd for that element of Disneyana. And the only like stuff they've released on that from the Disney vaults, if you get their like, Silver Edition Legacy Edition DVDs that they just did for a minute in the early aughts. And I have some of them. They've got amazing archival information about that, but I am such a nerd for the parks, more than the movies even. So thank you for mentioning that. Nathan, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate it. Again, 
Uh, you're definitely a wonderful asset to have on the show when we're talking about, uh, you know, the business of Hollywood films. Thank you. Well, it's nice to have the audience and thank you too. You made me realize some things I hadn't thought about before uh, with one of my favorite films. So thank you as well. And thank you for the opportunity to just talk about my research and make it feel like I didn't waste the last eight years of my life. <laughs> you know, more than that, if you count my master's when I first started doing this, my, my MA, but thank you so much. And happy Halloween, y'all. Enjoy this if you uh, are listening in October. Happy Halloween. Enjoy the cider. Want to develop your practice in dance filmmaking at the only master's program in the world? Then consider your master's in screen dance at London Contemporary Dance School in Euston, London. This 15-month course embraces the hybrid nature of dance filmmaking and subjects it to critical investigation. They are now accepting applications for their September 2022 course. For more information, please visit the description and link in the show notes. Mark your calendars. The Frameform season may be coming to a close, but Dance Cinema is just getting started. Head to our festival pages to check out our online selections of dance films from all over the world and get the latest on our live and online events. Saturday, October 9th, we are hosting live events for the 5th Annual Capital Dance and Cinema Festival in Washington, D.C. We're screening two blocks of short dance films, plus Duende, a narrative short from Spain, and the landmark documentary feature film, Uprooted, The Journey of Jazz Dance. If that rings a bell, it's because we interviewed the team behind the film in Season 1, Episode 5. And you know what else? Hannah, Claire, and I will all be there. We would love to meet you and celebrate seeing these films on the big screen like they deserve. Get your tickets and see more details at www.capitaldcfestival.com. If you can't make it to our live events, don't worry. We have lots available on demand on our website and channels. And since Uprooted, The Journey of Jazz Dance is such a must-see film, we're also making it available online October 10th and 11th exclusively at dancecinema.co slash watch. Whew, that was a lot. Check out the links in the show notes and thanks for being a Frameform listener. Do you love what you're hearing? Do you want to be heard? Send us an email at frameformpodcast at gmail.com and engage with us on social at frameformpod. That's frameform, P-O-D. If you really love what you're hearing, leave us a review and rate the show. It makes it easier for more listeners to find it. If you want to spread the love, tell your friends to subscribe and keep the conversation going. Thanks for listening. Frameform is a production of Rixie, hosted by Hannah Weber, Jen Ray, and Claire Schweitzer. Edited by the Frameform team. Mix and theme song by myself, Mason Carlton. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.